I uh, have spent a lot of time, I, I guess about half my life, uh, my adult life in politics, half my adult life in the academy. And uh, politics, politics comes from the Greek root poly, meaning many, and ticks, small blood-sucking insects. <laughs> I don't mean that at all. No, I don't mean that. In fact, I have the highest regard for people who dedicate their lives to public service. And it's not easy. Most people I met and knew in Washington uh, were there for the right reasons. They were there because they wanted to make the country better, even uh, notwithstanding the fact that they might be called Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or liberals or whatever. And my, uh, my, I salute them. Uh, the topic that uh, I chose or was given, I can't remember what it was today, is where is America going? And it seems uh, as I was walking over here this morning, I thought, well, that's a fairly broad topic. <laughs> and we uh, have uh, only an hour to talk about it. And I, but then I realized that uh, Dean Knott uh, from my wonderful Goldman School has already talked to many of you, or at least some of you were here for his talk about American foreign policy, so I could leave that to him. Uh, with regard to domestic policy, well, I'm assuming, and that includes social policy and also the economics, I'm assuming that most of you have a pretty good idea, at least of the short term, where we're going. You read the newspapers and you keep yourself apprised. And most economic discussions have to do with the business cycle. Now, where are we on the business cycle? Uh, 50,000 new jobs were created in September, I heard this morning, as the Department of Labor announced, the Bureau of Labor Statistics announced its jobs figures for September. And 50,000 new jobs in September? Well, I'll tell you something. I don't mean to sound in any way disappointed or denigrating or critical of anyone, but you need 125 to 150,000 new jobs just to keep up with population growth. So 50,000 new jobs is not great. But I did not want to spend my time talking about the economy or even, you know, necessarily short-term politics. I, I know that some of you are in this room Republicans, and I want you to know that I respect you. I don't like you, but I respect you. No, that's not true at all. That is not true at all. That's just like my comment, my facetious comment about politicians. Uh, in fact, it is very important, and I make it a cardinal principle in my classrooms here at Berkeley, uh, to stimulate debate and to respect people who might have a view that is either uh, very popular or very unpopular and to protect the unpopular views because it seems to me that's how students learn. And one of the big problems in this country is that we are not talking to each other across the divide of ideology or politics. When I got to Washington, that was not the case. In fact, in 1992, 1993, I had a lot of quite good friends uh, who were Republicans on Capitol Hill. Alan Simpson, some of you may remember Alan Simpson. I feel the same way. Alan Simpson and I did not see eye to eye because he was six foot five. But we became very good friends, and we continue to be good friends. Uh, we had to... Now, interestingly, in Washington, uh, and I'm going to get to the future in just a moment, but I just want to say this. Uh, in Washington, you do have a, a kind of a partisanship that has crept in, and I remember even in the 1990s, it started to creep in, and it became quite unpleasant for a while, and Alan Simpson and I wanted to visit with each other, and my staff would not hear of it. They said, how can you visit with Senator Alan Simpson? And his staff said, how can you visit with Secretary of Labor Robert Reich? So he and I actually used to pretend that we were going elsewhere. <laughs> And we would have lunch together, secretly. It was one of these illicit relationships you hear about in Washington. Uh, but 
Partisanship is not nearly as bad in the country, and even if you scratch the surface in Washington, it is not quite as bad as it may seem. My short-term prediction... Oh, by the way, I have to tell you something about prediction. If we're going to get into kind of where are we going, this is to some extent the science or the art of predicting. And I became and have something of a reputation for being a soothsayer (laughs) that is entirely undeserved. It comes from the first week of October of 1987. Now, some of you may remember what happened in the third week of October of 1987. Uh, in the first week of October of 1987, I, I was on a television show. Uh, it was a, one of these yelling programs. You know these yelling. <laughs> and I was yelling. Uh, uh, another economist was yelling at me. I was uh, yelling at him. And the, the question we were addressing was, what's going to happen to this wonderful bull market over the next month? And he was so enthusiastic, he almost was salivating. I mean, he just said, if you're not in the market, get in, and don't even wait till the end of this program to call your broker, and if you're in, get in deeper, call your broker right now. He was so excited, and I got to my turn, and I said, he is wrong. He is wrong. I can't tell you exactly, but it seems to me in two weeks. Now, there is a tape of this program. And I can get it for you if you don't believe me. In two weeks, the market's going to lose 20% of its value. And if you're not in the market, get stay out. And if you're in the market, get out. Don't even wait till the end of this program to get out. Call your broker and get out. In retrospect, I don't think anybody saw the end of the program because either way, they... And I won't tell you... I, it, I mean, in courtesy to him, I won't tell you who he was or is because he's not here to defend himself. Arthur Laffer. A good California, a good California boy. Uh, and so two years, two weeks later, the market uh, lost 20% of value, and people were deluged me with their letters, phone calls. Uh, they trying to uh, sign up for my investment letter. <laughs> and I told them, uh, with some regret, I didn't have an investment letter, but I, what I did not tell them, and I really would appreciate it, I will tell you, but if you could please keep it in this room. <laughs> That prediction I was making, on which my entire reputation since then as being a soothsayer depends, that in two weeks the market's going to lose 20% of its value, I had been making precisely the same prediction for four and a half years. (laughs) Which just goes to show you that if you stick to your guns, eventually you can have your own newsletter or financial letter. All right, what I, what I would like to do is focus beyond the business cycle and beyond the political cycle. I mean, most people now are saying that the economy is going to do all right. It's not, it's not a vigorous recovery. Uh, oil shocks are not quite as bad as we thought they would be about two months ago. Uh, the economy is sort of, uh, it's a soft landing. The Federal Reserve Board does not look like it's going to raise short-term interest rates for a time. Wall Street is breathing a sigh of relief. With regard to politics, it looks more and more for reasons that you know and I know that the Democrats are going to take the House. And if the polls I showed this morning, that I read this morning, uh, are any indication, maybe, in fact, there's even a likelihood that the Democrats will take back the Senate as well. And uh, no, 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 do not applaud. Because we are, this is a nonpartisan forum. And, and I, am not, I am not showing my exuberance over that possibility, and I don't think you should either. But, but look, at, we can, these are sort of short-term issues, but I want to get beyond the political cycle and beyond the business cycle and get into interesting territory. That is, where are we really going? And I thought in the time that we have, the limited time, I would focus on two areas and then hopefully have enough time to take some of your questions. Uh, Two areas that seem to me terribly important in terms of understanding where we are going, at least outside foreign policy, which, which Michael Knox has talked about. One of those areas has to do with a term in public discourse, and they're rare a term that has gone from obscurity to meaninglessness directly without any intervening period of coherence. And the term I'm talking about is globalization. 
Everybody talks about globalization. Everybody thinks they're now an expert on globalization. But you see, the cartoon version that we have in our heads has ex very little to do with where the nation is going, where America is going. The, the cartoon version in many of our heads is that we are somehow over here. Here's America over here. And our future in terms of globalization depends upon how much we export, we being our companies, American-based companies, and they over there, the Asians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Europeans, and so on, they are trying to export to us, and their future depends on how much they export to us, and therefore the performance and competitiveness of their companies. And so it's sort of us versus them. And we meet on the great playing fields of international trade. And everybody's worried about the trade imbalance. And that's what we mean, most of us, when we talk about the problem or the challenge of globalization. Not true. That cartoon version doesn't help us understand the future. It doesn't explain the present. It doesn't really explain much of the recent past. Globalization is much more about, well, let me give you an example. This is what I try to do in class. I don't just tell the answer, I give examples. And then have people, have my students try to use inductive logic to find the principle. Much more interesting that way, isn't it? Uh, when I was Secretary of Labor, I, one day, I had to, our car, our, our family car died, and we, I had a Sunday free, my wife was out of town, I had to, I, I went to a showroom, I had to get a new car, and I went, I found a Toyota that was actually perfect for our family needs. I did not buy it, I wanted my wife to see it. I got back uh, to the office uh, the next day, uh, an assistant of mine, who is a very subtle political uh, a very acute was a very 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 he still was very very sharp political mind uh, found out about my almost purchase and said you know uh, Mr. Secretary let me remind you you're Secretary of Labor of the United States and maybe just maybe I don't want to impose and obviously don't want to presum be presumptuous but maybe it just might be a good idea to get a big three a car from the big three manufactured by the big three and I instantly instantly saw the the, the perspicacious sense the kind of the insight the amazing political insight of this fellow uh, and I well I, I did next weekend we went to a, another a big three and we found a car that was almost as good as the Toyota I think <laughs> And it, it seemed, and I, but I remember, I said to the, I said to the dealer on the showroom floor, I said, I want to know before I buy this, is this car, I know it has an American nameplate, but was this car actually made by American workers here in the United States? And he looked at me for a long instant, <laughs> trying to decide, was I one of those? <laughs> or was I one of those? And finally, he looked up with a smile and said, which would you prefer? <laughs> now, a moment's inductive reflection on your part will suggest to you the moral of that little story. And that is that it's getting harder and harder to tell who is us and who is them. Because everything is almost everything, not everything, but almost everything now is the kind of uh, product of what we call, in business speak, global supply chains. That is, pieces are coming from everywhere. Value is coming from everywhere. Uh, the moral of the story, really, is that the standard of living of you and your children and your grandchildren, uh, the standard of living of people in California, standard of living of people in the United States generally, will come to depend, and is coming to depend, less and less on the profitability of companies that happen to be headquartered near you, or even in the United States, and more and more on the value that people like you and your children or grandchildren, like people like your neighbors, the value that we add to an increasingly integrated global economy. That is, there are coming to be more Americans working for Toyota than for Ford. 
And therefore, the whole idea of an American car, or the idea of American anything, is becoming less and less relevant to the question of standard of living. If we add a lot to this newly integrated global system of supply chains, we will do quite well. If we're not adding very much value, we are not going to be doing all that well. Or to illustrate it in a slightly different way, because when I say that, some people sort of say to themselves, but wait a minute, we are competing with people around the world who can work for a fraction and are eager to work for a fraction of our wages. How can that possibly be? How can we compete with them? How can we add value when they, I mean, look at the people in India, look at the engineers, look at the Chinese uh, who are becoming more and more adept. How can we possibly compete? What's going to happen to America over the next 20, 30 years? Several years ago, I had to have my hips replaced. I did it at a wonderful place uh, in Brigham and Women's Hospital, some of you know, in Boston, Massachusetts. And I was talking about global supply chains, and I realized that I had not made a very important personal, existential almost, inquiry. I, I wish I could show you these hips. They're fabulous hips. They're uh, corrosion-resistant, tensile strength, high tensile strength steel, uh, covered with a lovely plastic coating. I can't show you, but you have to take my word for it. And I went back to Brigham and Women's Hospital because I realized I did not know exactly where my beautiful new hips were made. I mean, it's a, a question of sort of personal identity and nationality. And so I, I found out that my beautiful new hips were actually fabricated in Germany. Now, Germany is not a low-wage jurisdiction. In fact, if anything, Germany... In real purchasing power parity, Germany, by some measures, has higher median wages than in the United States. And not only were they fabricated in Germany, my beautiful lips, but they were designed in France. I have French designer hips. <laughs> A few years ago, I'd have to call them Liberty hips. But we're beyond that, aren't we? <laughs> now, how can it be, again, German, Germany and France are both high-wage jurisdictions. Now, if it were true that everything is going to the cheapest place to make things, you would expect that these would be made, or will shortly be made, in China uh, or in India. Or, in fact, if it was only a matter of inexpensive, it, they would be made, everything would be made in Bangladesh. <laughs> but that is not the case. In fact, the global supply chains depend to a great degree, not just on the inexpensiveness or the cheapness of labor or inputs, but they also depend on the expertise. The expertise. The most important and valuable part of my hips actually occurred in Boston. And that is where the greatest portion of the value was added in terms of the surgeons in Boston. People coming from all over the world to Brigham and Women's to get all sorts of things done. We have some of the best hospitals in the world. That's one of our big exports from the United States. We don't think of it that way, but that's true. Our expertise will determine increasingly our standard of living. We don't need everybody having a great degree of expertise because we have a lot of people in our country who used to, used to be manufacturing workers. Now, what is going to happen to all of them? And it's not just manufacturing workers. A lot of manufacturing has indeed gone south of the border and then gone to China and then now going to Vietnam. A lot of manufacturing that is commodity manufacturing doesn't really have to be done with a great deal of expertise. But it's not just manufacturing going south of the border. It is also services. And I don't mean just services, call centers and things like that going abroad. I mean that technology is having a bigger effect on our labor force and will in the future than globalization. We lost huge numbers. Do you remember when we had telephone operators? Do you remember when we had 
In fact, my students don't even believe that there was a time. I tell them and they are incredulous. There's a time when in order to make a deposit in a bank and get money out of a bank, you had to deal with a person. They go, amazing, amazing. Anybody here remember something called a service station? Does anybody, here's a real test for you, and you put up your hands. Anybody remember when service station attendants had to be in uniform? Some of you are very old. Well, what happened to all those people? Now, it's not globalization that took away those jobs. In fact, uh, manufacturing, and here's an interesting, China is actually losing manufacturing jobs. How can it be that China is losing manufacturing jobs when China is becoming the manufacturing center of the entire world? China is losing manufacturing jobs partly because Chinese wages are moving upward given demand, given their increase in living standards, and some of Chinese manufacturing is going to lower wage places like Vietnam. But China is also losing manufacturing jobs, in fact, to a much larger extent because of technology, because the factories are becoming more efficient. All of those old, highly inefficient state-run factories are being closed, and instead you have more numerically controlled machine tools and more robots. Not long ago, the governor of a large Midwestern state here in the United States that will have to remain nameless asked me to come and celebrate the opening of a new factory that that governor was very proud to have lured from Europe. A European company was going to open up some factory in the Midwest. There was a big contest as to which state was going to get the factory, and this particular governor had provided through his legislature enough tax abatements, enough subsidies, so the company was going there. And it was a big, big political victory, asked me to come for the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and I was quite happy to come, and I went. But before I actually got to the ceremony, early in the morning, I decided to go over to the factory and visit it, and because the factory was going at full speed, humming, full capacity, and I wanted to see what the workers were doing. And I went into the factory and I couldn't find them. <laughs> I ultimately found 11 workers. They were technicians. They were sitting behind computer consoles. They were doing fancy algorithms, I guess. They were controlling all of the numerically controlled machine tools and the robots that were actually doing the work. And so I didn't want to say at the ribbon-cutting ceremony that each of the jobs, of the 11 jobs, had cost the people in that state something in the order of $3 million a year, but I want to share with you the reality that technology is having a bigger displacement effect than globalization. What happened in that factory, what happened in the service station is happening all over. By the way, by the way, and it happens very fast, when I came back from Washington, when I went to Washington, before I went to Washington, that service station had a lot of people in it. When I came back from Washington, went down to that service station, there was nobody there. Nobody. I couldn't find a person. It was like a factory. I went and I, I think somebody was behind a glass window, maybe. I tapped on the window, I heard something, but there was nobody there. You know, by the way, you are no longer in the cabinet when you get in the back seat of your car and there's nobody in the front seat. <laughs> A lot of adjusting I had to do. Now, what is the, so what is the moral of all of this? The moral of all of this is that our future well-being, our standard of living, depends increasingly on our education on our insights, on our capacities to innovate. Now, most of the people who used to be telephone operators and bank tellers and service station attendants and many people who used to be in factories, many of those people have found new jobs. In fact, most of them have found new jobs. Despite the fact that the jobs report for September was kind of disappointing, that's a business cycle issue. That has to do with aggregate demand. Has to do, it doesn't have to do with, I mean, trade does not diminish the total number of jobs anywhere. It doesn't increase the total number of jobs anywhere. It has an effect, rather, on the allocation of the jobs. 
Most of the new jobs being created in the United States are being created in the local service economy. Retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, surface transportation, child care, elder care, construction jobs. Some of these jobs, like construction jobs, pay fairly well, but most of them do not pay fairly well. In 1960, the biggest employer in the United States was General Motors. The biggest industry was the United States automobile industry. And in 1960, if you ask yourself what those GM workers or the Ford workers were being paid in terms of wages and their fringe benefits together, and you put them in $2,000, that is dollars, current dollars, you find that they were being paid about $60 an hour. The biggest employer today is Walmart. Walmart is employing more people than all of the people who are in the United States automobile industry, whether they're working for Japanese or American automobile companies, and they are being paid an average of slightly less than $10 an hour, and few of them are getting benefits. This is not Walmart's fault. In fact, if you start thinking in terms of fault, you may lose the point. The point is that we've had a massive structural change in the United States that has been pushed by globalization, but even more by technology. And we have not kept up with, for the most part, the educational needs of our society in terms of making sure that people have enough skill to generate a lot of value and be highly productive. The people at the top are doing wonderfully well. Wonderfully well. Globalization and technology are great if you've got the right education, you've got the right skills, you've got the right connections. Globalization and technology are both on your side. Globalization means you have a larger, larger market for all of your innovations, all of your insights. Technology means that you have more leverage to do everything that you can do in terms of your brain power technology can magnify it. I can push a button, I can spend a, a, a couple of hours at my computer, push a button, and boom, send that anywhere around the world. But if you don't have the education, the connections, if you don't have the right skills, globalization and technology are undermining your wages. They're undermining your standard of living. Median wages in the United States over the last six years have gone absolutely nowhere, nowhere in real inflation-adjusted terms. If you look at hourly wages for male workers in the United States, and hourly wages, well, you know, male workers used to be breadwinners for most houses, hourly wages for male workers since 1976 have actually dropped adjusted for inflation. So if you're asking yourself, what's the outlook if you just extrapolate, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does a lot of extrapolations based upon what the jobs are likely to be in the future, premised upon what they are today. And most of the job growth in the future, says the Bureau of Labor Statistics, will be in the areas that are the local service economy, because they are not jeopardized by international competition, most of them, and they are not most of them going to be taken away by computers or software because retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, and so on demand personal attention. That's the nature of them. But they don't pay very well. So I would say to you that the big challenge, and we'll talk about this much more, the big challenge in terms of globalization and in terms of technology and technological change is to make sure we have an educational system, not only primary and secondary, but also, and here's where social science research tells us we can make huge headway if we understand the payoff to this in early childhood education, terribly terribly important, and the evidence is almost incontrovertible. We will come back to this in a moment, but I want to also talk to you about the twin trend, a trend like technology and globalization that is affecting us profoundly and will affect us profoundly in the future. In other words, if you think of this in terms of uh, almost vectors, and I've given you two vectors, one is globalization, the other is technology, the third big vector affecting us in the future is demographics. 
demographics. Easier to predict than globalization and technology because demographics has to do with population as it grows, as it changes. Most people, I can give you a prediction, most people in the workforce today in the United States who are 30 years old in 10 years' time will be 40. <laughs> An astounding prediction. That's how I got my reputation as being a soothsayer. But you see, the, the big demographic, the big demographic challenge, the big demographic reality is the baby boomers. People born between 1946 and 1964. 76 and a half million of us. How many of you were born between 1964 and, uh, between 1946 and 1964? Anybody here? <laughs> Put up your hands proudly, you boomers. Proud boomers, put up your hands. Well, I was born in 1946, which means that I am turning 60 this year. But I'm not alone because Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Laura Bush and Ken Starr <laughs> and Cher, born on the day I was born. Can you imagine Cher and I were born on the same day? Boggles the mind. But everybody I know was born in 1946. Why? Because in 1946 our fathers came home from the war. And our mothers were ready for them. And so there was a big demographic, huge demographic, a big, a big lump. I mean, it's like if you imagine the American population demographically as like, like, a, like a python. I mean, just, you know, sort of a, a kind of a, from head to the end of the python, the, the, the baby boomers are like a, a pig moving through that python. Okay, I'll take that back. Let's make that a, a wave, a large wave. A large wave hitting the shores of retirement, uh, beginning to hit the shores of retirement in five years, mathematically. Now, a lot of people say, oh, what are we going to do about Social Security? America in the future, biggest problem is Social Security. No. I was, a social, I was a trustee of the Social Security Trust Fund uh, in my capacity uh, in, as Secretary of Labor, and we would meet with the Social Security actuaries every so often, and the actuaries would give us their projections. And I remember asking the actuaries about the economic assumptions on which their projections were based. It turns out that the assumption that Social Security is going to run out of money sometime in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, depending upon whose projection you believe, rests upon a very important, but I think highly dubious assumption. And that is that the American economy over the next 75 years, and these are 75-year projections, will grow at an annualized rate of 2.6% a year. Now, the reason that that's a dubious projection is that if you go back to the Civil War and ask yourself, what is the annualized rate of growth of the United States since the Civil War? It's about 3%, even with the Depression. And so I remember asking the actuary for the Social Security Trust Fund, well, what happens if you put in a 3% number? Just do it. And he said, well, we want to be very cautious. I said, of course you want to be cautious, but I don't want to panic the public. Just put in the number uh, that is the average economic growth of this country since the Civil War. Just do it. And he came back and he said, well, you know, if you do it that way... <laughs> Social Security stays flush right through the next 75 years. The big problem is not Social Security. Now, I, I want to be cautious, and it, there is a baby boom, and there's sort of a, a trench after the baby boom, the baby bust, and it is true that you're going to have a lot of people retired and a lot of people who are working for all the people who are retired. And I go around the country and I ask baby boomers in kind of a free-floating focus group, what do you expect in your retirement? I mean, boomers have not saved for their retirements. 
We know this. Boomers expected their, the trajectory of their wages to be much better than it actually turned out to be, and so most boomers have not saved. And yet, when I ask them to envision the kind of retirement that they want at the age of 65, they give me something that I call a med-med retirement, kind of a cross between a club med and a medical facility. You know, I mean, snorkeling in the morning, extra oxygen in the afternoon. But, but they're not going to get it because there's no way we can afford to get it. The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that they haven't saved. It's not Social Security. And the, the other big problem, the big, big problem is Medicare. Medicare is a bear. Medicare is what we all ought to be worried about. If we're talking about uh, the challenges in the future, domestically in this country, one of the biggest challenges is Medicare. Why is Medicare growing so fast? Partly because the population is aging, but the other issue is that medical technology and drugs continue to cost so much more. Now, is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem if you say to yourself, we are a rich country, and after all, it's good that we are living longer. In 1946, when I was born, life expectancy, the average lifespan in the United States, was 62.9 years. Now, remember, Social Security kicked in at 65, so it wasn't such a great deal. <laughs> Social Security still kicks in at 65, but the fact of the matter is that the average lifespan is getting closer to 80. Now, that's a lot about medical technology, and that's good. Infant mortality is way down. We are controlling a lot of terrible diseases that we could not control before. We are spending a fortune on medicine. It's a very inefficient system. It can be made much more efficient. I mean, we have the only medical system in the world that is as costly as it is, and it's designed primarily to avoid sick people. <laughs> that may sound strange to you, but if you think of all the marketing and advertising going on by all the insurance companies and all the medical providers to try to find groups of people that are relatively healthy and avoid groups of people who are relatively sick, you understand what I am talking about. So there is much room for improvement. And if I were going to make some predictions, I'd say, we have got to. In Medicare, we will inevitably change Medicare so that government has more bargaining leverage. doesn't have it now. The new Medicare drug bill law does not allow Medicare to negotiate with drug companies for better deals. But that is going to change. Also, I am absolutely sure because the middle class is now getting hit with sticker shock on health care costs as employers shift the cost burden in terms of co-payments and deductibles and premiums onto their employees. The middle class is holding on to health insurance barely. And we've got 46 million Americans without health insurance at all. When Bill Clinton floated his health insurance plan, it was 38 million. Now, by the way, I was told by the White House, as were other cabinet members, that we had to go out across America and sell Bill Clinton's health care plan. And I tried, but it was impossible to understand. I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. And I think that's one of the reasons it ran into so much difficulty. You can't, in Washington, expect... Congress and the public to accept something that is so complicated nobody can understand it. It's, it's a, an invitation to demagoguery. But we will, I am absolutely sure, because of middle-class sticker shock and because some big companies are dying under the weight of their health care obligations, we will have a lot of proposals on the table in the not-too-distant future for some sort of affordable national health care once again. Now, the other, the other lesson from this demographic shift, this baby boom shift, and it's just as relevant to technology and globalization, is that we're going to have a relatively smaller population. And that smaller population is going to tend to be less educated. It means that immigration becomes that much more important. There is no way that Europe, the United States, 
Japan, China, any of these places are going to deal with the aging of their populations without making younger people in their countries much, much more productive and without opening their countries to some extent to more immigration from countries around the world where you have huge numbers of young people. That is part of globalization, folks. We may not like it. We may get nervous because of it. But that is part of globalization. The percentage of people in the United States who are born outside or were born outside the United States today, that percentage is not all that different from the percentage who were born outside the United States in 1900. But between 1900 and today, we have sort of uh, had a holiday from the global migration of people. That holiday is over. Now, Luckily for us, unlike Europe, unlike other places like Japan, unlike other places around the world, we have a history of assimilating people from around the world. Most of you, I dare say, are the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or great-great-grandchildren, people who came from outside the United States. One thing we know about immigrants, even though the new wave of immigrants given the 1965 immigration law, tends to be less educated than some of the older waves by a hair. One thing we know about immigration and immigrants is that they have something that many people who are here born in the United States do not have, or at least people who are here for many years and for many generations. They have, by the very nature of trying to get here, they have that quality called ambition, which economics, economists and others have found to be the number one ingredient for success. Maybe not immediately. You have to do a lot of fighting for education. You've got a lot of, doing a lot of fighting for your kids. But one thing we can say with some certitude is that within probably two generations, a lot of these immigrants to the United States, whether they are here legally or illegally, and I'm not making a comment about whether what I think should be done about that. It's a very complicated issue. But they will be productive. They will be contributing more to society than they are taking from society. But education, again, is critical. Many of you, and I'm going to wind up on this note and then open it up to your questions. Many of you have seen the California primary and secondary education system go from being one of the rest, best in the country to one of the worst in the country. Many of you are aware that the University of California, one reason I came here is that I wanted to teach at a great State University, and there is no better state university in the world. No better public university in the world. You share that view. <laughs> then the University of California at Berkeley. But even at the University of California at Berkeley, there are issues about what can be afforded, and whether young people who could come here and qualify and do wonderfully well actually can afford to come here. And that should not be the case. It should not be the case not only because it shouldn't be for them, but it should not be the case for all of us because we all gain to the extent that we are utilizing the talents and capacities of all of our young people. We cannot live in a society in which the rising tide is lifting only the yachts. <laughs> and on that optimistic note, I will end my formal presentation. I really do want to tell you, though, how much of a treat it is to be here. Uh, I have taught at other great universities, and they are indeed great universities. I've loved them. Uh, but I find the excitement and the dynamism, uh, the diversity, the interdisciplinary approach that departments take here, the excitement that so many students and faculty members and wonderful staff. I mean, the staff here often don't get credit. They are fabulous staff here. Uh, it's, a, it's just a 
Believe me, you know it because you were here. It's a wonderful, wonderful treasure of a place. Thank you very much. And now for your questions. We have about 10, 15 minutes for your questions. And I'll repeat your question, by the way, in case people can't hear it. And uh, if I don't have an answer to your question, I'll repeat a question that I can answer. <laughs> My son is, is in seventh grade studying civics and tells me that we are no longer a melting pot. We are a mosaic because immigrants coming are not assimilating and melding together in a pot but are keeping their separate identities and I wondered if you felt that was true and if that had an impact on where you see America well, going. The, yeah, there is some evidence that the assimilation process is a little bit slower than it was for certain generations before uh, but no, I don't think that we are becoming a mosaic in the sense that assimilation is happening. Second, third generation Americans speak like everybody else. They want everything that everybody else has. They speak uh, perfectly wonderful, good English. They want upward mobility. Uh, I don't see at the second, third generation level anything happening. What I am concerned about, though, is that we have more concentrated pockets of poverty in this country. That is, wealth and poverty are more geographically concentrated than ever. And that means that if you are a poor immigrant, the chances of you actually getting out, or your children getting out of your concentrated area of poverty, are a little bit harder. The schools are not very good. There are not very many good uh, examples and models of success around you that children can emulate. So for that reason, there is a larger social challenge. But it's not because they're just talking to themselves. Uh, yes, let me take somebody, uh, ma'am, you, with that great smile you have on your face. If, um, if our population could be made to have the ambition that you so rightly sense in our immigrant population and future immigrant population, would we be better off cutting off immigration? In other words, you said the main, the main thing that the advantage of immigration provides is their ambition. That's what makes our economy grow. Could we grow it by finding another way to provide that ambition to our current population? Well, you know, the, the question about how many immigrants should come here and how, what's the appropriate level uh, is, a, is a little bit of a question about who is us and who is them. I mean, the fact is that most of us are, as I said, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren of immigrants. And so if we say they should not come, we're kind of bringing up the ladder now, uh, we have to have some assumption about limited space or limited resources or sort of some other limits that we've reached. The United States population sometime this week, maybe it's happened already, will reach 300 million people. Now that may sound like a lot of people, it certainly sounds like a lot of people to me, but for anybody who has flown, as I often do, from the west coast to the east, if you look down, <laughs> there's a vast area that I occasionally visit, it's called the flyover. And there are not too many people there. So I, 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 I know that, yes, we are getting crowded in sort of, sort of our urban areas. There is some evidence that when a lot of new immigrants who do have very low skills come into a particular geographic area, they do tend to drive down the wages of the native-born population who is also unskilled. I'm just focusing on the lack of good jobs. Well, no, the, the, the lack of, the, the lack, this is not, this is something that I perhaps should have said right away, and thank you. The number of good jobs is not fixed, is not limited. There's no fixed number of good jobs in the United States or even in the world to be parceled out. It's not as if there's a finite limit to the needs of human beings. 
And there's not as if there's a finite limit to the ingenuity of the human mind. So given that there's no finite limit to human needs, and there's no finite limit that we know of to the ingenuity of the human mind, there's no reason to assume that there's a limit, limit to the number of good jobs. what you said about the indisputable cost-effectiveness of early childhood education. Um, could you comment on what you think are the prospects for public support eventually and um, living wages for child care workers? You know, when somebody asks me a question like this, I, I, I always have a slight debate in my head about whether to tell you what I hope and want or whether to tell you what I expect. And since the theme of this is where are we going, my expectation is that uh, unless there is a widespread understanding of the importance of early childhood education, unless there's a lot more money, taxpayer money, into early childhood edu education on the premise that it helps all of us, that the rising tide really will help all of us, I don't see much change. Families are going to have a very hard time affording it, and if families have a hard time affording it as it is, families are going to have even more of a difficult time affording paying childcare workers anything more than they're paying, even though you and I understand how important. We, you know, these, these two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds are the most precious things we have, and families want to pay as much as possible. And this really raises the whole question of educational salaries as well, because this nation in the 1940s, 50s, 1960s, before that, got a free ride, essentially, off the fact that women who had professional ambitions didn't have that many openings, that many opportunities other than to become school teachers or nurses or maybe in the 1950s and 60s flight attendants. But beginning in the 1970s, many women with professional ambitions had suddenly many other choices. And if you just understand that the law of supply and demand is not repealed at the classroom door, you understand that if we want to get talented women or men into our classrooms, we have to pay them comparable wages to attract the talent that the rest of the country is getting. Now, that's not the only thing to improve education. That's not the necessity, but that's part of it. I have a contract, social contract with you, and that is to end at noon. I'm also going to uh, meet my son for lunch, who is a PhD candidate in sociology here at Berkeley. Thank you all.